I'm not a millennial. I don't understand these things. Good evening. I considered buying a coat and tie for this evening, but after thinking about it, decided that me wearing a coat and tie would be more distracting than me not wearing a coat and tie. So, and that is my only joke for this evening, so that was your last chance to laugh. And with that, let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truths found in Romans 12, 1 through 2. Please, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us humility to respond in faith to your word for our sanctification and for your glory. And if there is anyone here tonight who hasn't bowed the knee to you, please reveal yourself and give them the gift of saving faith and repentance. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Romans 12, 1 through 2 is our text for this evening. And if you're using a pew Bible, it can be found on page 947. And please follow along as I read Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 1 through 2 is one of the more famous passages in the Bible, and it's one of the more beautiful. Tightly constructed with language that flows off the tongue, our passage for this evening is both an epilogue and a prologue. As epilogue, Romans 12, 1 through 2 serves to recap the previous 11 chapters. But more than just a recap, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul succinctly defines for the readers what God's saving action means practically in the life of the believer. God has worked out this great salvation, making a new nation, saving all who put their full hope and faith in the person and work of King Jesus. And that, the gospel, has great significance for today. As prologue for the remaining chapters of Romans, the script is somewhat reversed. Paul, preparing to dive into a series of imperatives for the Christian, there are unavoidable ethics wrapped up in being a follower of King Jesus. Paul compels the reader to live out life in the reality that God has mercifully saved them from their sins. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Romans 6, 6 through 7. And with Romans 12, 1 through 2, the Apostle Paul is gearing up to let us know what it looks like to live a life freed from sin by God's grace. We know, however, that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And though only two verses, and two verses that serve as a bridge between the first 11 chapters and the remaining five chapters in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, Romans 12, 1 through 2 has all the wealth, beauty, and hope that can be mined from the gospel of Jesus Christ and offers us a bird's eye yet clear view of what a life that has been changed by the gospel looks like. And this change is a result of God's action, which is my first point of three. Point one, God's action. Point two, our response. And point three, the Holy Spirit's work. So point one, God's action. If you're like me, 
the word therefore immediately jumps out of the text. For me, it jumps out because every sermon, every book, every Bible study that exists in my memory defined and explained therefore when it was included in the text under consideration. In fact, because of that, I stubbornly dug in my heels and decided that I wasn't going to spend any time on therefore. I thought, it's not necessary. Anybody who comes out to a Sunday evening service already knows what therefore means. They get it. Well, as you've probably already got, at some point during my study, my mind was changed. Therefore is too important to set aside. And it's too important because it's the hinge that Paul's teaching in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 swings on. Remove that hinge and Paul's thoughts in our text become an easily moved door that can be hung on the doorpost of all manner of proof texting, opening the passage up for entrance into an improper focus on a variety of pet issues. And when that happens, the faith-sustaining and hope-building message found in the Holy Spirit-inspired verses are obscured. As it is, that therefore firmly connects chapter 12, 1 through 2, as well as the remaining chapters of Romans, to the rich theology, the, the laying bare of God's goodness displayed through the gospel that the Apostle Paul expounds in the first 11 chapters. So let's look at that therefore again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Appeal how? By the mercies of God. Whatever happens next, however Paul is about to exhort us, it's unequivocally rooted and flowering out of the mercies of God. And what are God's mercies that Paul's referencing? His arguments in Romans chapters 1 through 11 about how God has accomplished salvation. In the first two and a half chapters, Paul removes any doubt that we humans, all of us, are sinners standing guilty before the throne of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Romans 3, 10 through 12. If that was it, if Paul ended Romans with that, Romans 3, 10 through 12, that we are all sinners who want nothing to do with our Creator, who despise the sovereign rule of our holy and just God, the curse found in Genesis 3 would never give way to the promise of Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. We would be lost. But Paul, just a few verses later in chapter 3, continues, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I would love to continue unpacking chapter by chapter the gospel message of Romans, but we need to continue with our text. But please know this. If you are here this evening and your life is stuck in verses 10 through 12 of Romans chapter 3, if you are a sinner who has not bowed the knee in faith and repentance before the throne of God, placing your entire hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ, King Jesus is extending His nail-scarred hands, offering to lift you out of verses 10 through 12 and bring you into the glorious truth found in verses 23 through 26, that by His life, death, and resurrection, 
He has justified all those who place their faith in Him. In a few moments, we are going to celebrate Jesus' life, death, and resurrection at this table. If you're not a Christian, listen and observe as we eat the bread and drink the cup. This table is one of the means that King Jesus has ordained for us to rehearse and rejoice in God's mercies that the Apostle Paul referenced in chapter 12, verse 1. So, coming back to our text, that therefore explicitly tells us that, as the notes in the ESV Study Bible state, Christians are to give themselves entirely to God because of His saving grace. The same saving grace that Paul has been teaching through the first 11 chapters of Romans. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we move forward, hopefully quickly, through the rest of verse 1 and verse 2, allow yourselves to respond joyfully because God has mercifully saved you from your sins. And God's mercies... Our salvation is the exact reason why we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. And this brings us to point two, our response. Our lives as Christians are to be living, breathing demonstrations of God's mercy to us. God has saved us from our sins, but as the theologian Douglas Moo points out, God's mercy is not a matter of past benefits only but it continues to exercise its power in and through us. Any absurd notion that we can somehow pay God back, that we can live a life in a way that balances out the ledger of God's mercies, is made even more nonsensical in light of the reality that that God's mercies have not only been heaped on us, but are being heaped and will continue to be heaped on us for all eternity. There is no way we can ever pay God back for His mercies. We should, however... Live a life of doxology as a response to God's mercies. Echoing Paul, our life, our being, is to be worship. And not just aspects of our life. Paul wrote bodies for a reason. Well, for two reasons. One, it has application to the body. Arlington Baptist Church is a body made up of members. And we know from 1 Corinthians 12.12 that all the members of the body though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. We have a responsibility to be loving, serving, and worshiping God together as one body. And we can't do that if we isolate ourselves from each other. If, as members of Arlington Baptist Church, we view our responsibilities as limited to specific days or specific aspects of service, we are not worshiping God in view of His all-encompassing, never-ending mercies. For example, and we could highlight many examples. When was the last time you, and I'm included in that you, prayed for a fellow member of this body? Now, and hold on loosely to that guilt I've just covered all of us with. Lord willing, in my last point, the Holy Spirit will show us how we've already been freed from that guilt. So Paul's use of bodies also has individual application, which, to be honest, cannot be separated from the corporate application. Going back to 1 Corinthians 12, we read in verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. As individuals, we need to recognize that our response to God's mercies cannot be compartmentalized. God's mercies lay claim to the entirety of our lives. My cleaning the church bathrooms on Friday should be as much of a doxology to God as my preaching on this Lord's Day. Whatever plow God has placed your hands on, 
It is to be done with praise, thanksgiving, and for the glory of God. Whatever plow. And whatever means whatever. Everything that we do. Hanging out with friends, our social media activity, our entertainment options, walking down the sidewalk. Everything is to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as a thankful response to God's mercies. He has saved you from your sins, Christian. Live thankfully. This morning, Pastor Mike led us through Numbers 28 and 29. We explored a variety of offerings and sacrifices that God commanded of the Israelites. One of the striking similarities between the sacrifices of Numbers 28 and 29 and Romans 12 is the totality of God's claim on our lives, the lives of the Old Testament saints and those of us living under the New Covenant. If you remember back to Pastor Mike's sermon, and it was only this morning, there wasn't an avenue or moment of the Israelites' lives that wasn't centered on sacrifices. However, in this evening's text, there is a notable difference from this morning's text. And that difference is found in the word living. The Old Testament sacrifices were a type pointing forward to the final sacrifice. Jesus Christ has fulfilled everything that the Old Testament sacrifices prefigured. With His life, death, and resurrection, King Jesus perfectly fulfilled the entire law, paid the final price for our sins, and was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, fully defeating sin and death. God's mercies have freed us to be living sacrifices, pointing back to the person and work of Jesus Christ, who, unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, is now living and reigning. Our lives, our actions, do not add anything to our salvation. God, through Jesus Christ, has provided the full price required to vindicate His righteous justice and save us from our sins. Like the Old Testament sacrifices that pointed towards Jesus, our lives should be a constant reference to the mercies of God demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But how are we to be living sacrifices? Last week and this morning in the adult Sunday school class, Eric on church history briefly mentioned monasticism. Is that how we should be tracking with this? Should we sequester ourselves away from the world? Is the best way to be a living sacrifice found in denying ourselves material things? I mean, Paul does write in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. But, and my short answer, which I'll ha be happy to unpack for you after the service or even later in the week if you'd like, is that it doesn't mean monasticism and it doesn't mean denying ourselves material things. There are applications for us here, though. We are commanded to not be conformed to this world, and that does mean something. And we don't have to dive into the rabbit hole of do's and don'ts in order to extricate application from Paul's broad imperative that's an opening salvo to some specifics that he's going to address over the next few chapters. What it does mean for us as Christians is that we belong to a kingdom that runs counter to the concerns and objectives of this world. In fact, going farther, this world system, or age, as the word could be translated, is in direct rebellion against the kingdom of Jesus. The serpent, while defeated, is still at work in a desperate and ultimately futile attempt to usurp the throne of God. I've heard several preachers compare it to D-Day. After the Allies secured the beachhead and were pushing into France, the war was over, but the Nazi troops weren't going down without inflicting as much damage as possible. And that historical oversimplification aside for you history majors, the point stands. 
Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, has won the war. But until he returns, until the second advent, the serpent and the serpent's seed can still bite. And this matters for us in light of Romans 12.2 because we serve the king of kings. We serve the seed of the woman who has crushed the head of the serpent. But do our lives reflect that? Or are our lives characterized by allowing the world, this age, to provide us with our categories and definitions for things like love, justice, and goodness? Are we more concerned with currying favor with our co-workers, next-door neighbors, or family members than we are with sharing the good news that King Jesus has conquered sin and death? Are we living as if the world's priorities take precedent over our king's priorities? These are the types of questions that we need to prayerfully consider when confronted by Paul's admonition to not be conformed to the world. Verse 2 concludes with the assertion that we can discern what is the will of God, which is the positive side of the negative, do not be conformed to this world. Thankfully, we Christians have the Holy Spirit working in our lives, which is our third and final point for this evening, the Holy Spirit's work. And this is further good news for Christians in all of this. If you remember, all the way back to my introduction, I said that as a prologue for the remaining five chapters, Romans 12, 1 through 2 kind of reverses the script. Well, one of God's mercies is the gift of His Spirit. Yes, we are called to live a life that points to the mercies of God. But we are able to do that because of the Holy Spirit's work, because of God's mercies. As new covenant believers, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and discerning the will of God is a product of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The only thing that can keep us from being conformed to this world is having the mind of Christ. And it's a continual process. Paul uses the present tense when telling us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Our transformation, our sanctification is an ongoing process. And it may seem long and slow at times. But it's an ongoing process that affects the deepest recesses of our being. Being conformed to the world is a transient thing. The world changes. I'm a very, very young 40 years old. And at the risk of sounding crotchety, the philosophical shifts around us happen so quickly as to boggle my mind. This world, this age, can't keep track of its own inconsistencies because it's serving itself and is mired in constantly repeating confusion. In contrast, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is a continuous movement towards Christ-likeness. History is headed somewhere, and our sanctification bears that reality out. Being tossed around by the whims and fancies of the world will end in tragedy. And if you're a child of God, you can rest assured in the promise that, as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Christian, approach the throne of grace with gladness and the full knowledge that your Father in heaven hears you and has already forgiven your sins. Live life joyfully in the freedom that King Jesus has won for you as opposed to those in Romans 1.28, whom God has given up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, be thankful that the Holy Spirit is renewing your mind and empowering you to live a life of grateful sacrifice that points to Jesus. As we prepare for communion, allow the wonderful mercies that God has bestowed on you 
beginning with who He is, to wash over you and cause you to rejoice in your salvation. Be thankful that God has and is accomplishing for us and through us what we are unable to do in and of ourselves. We serve a kind and gracious God, and our lives should reflect that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your great mercies. Thank you for determining before time began that you, through the person and work of King Jesus, were going to save a people unto yourself. Thank you for providing forgiveness for our sins. Please, through the power of the Holy Spirit, give us the grace needed to live lives that point to King Jesus and that make your name great. As we come to the communion table, cause us to respond with joy and thanksgiving for all that you have done. If there are any here who have not bowed the knee before you, please grant them the gift of repentance and saving faith. In the name of your Son and our great and kind King, Christ Jesus. Amen.